Okay, if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Micah chapter 5, please? Micah chapter 5. You don't know where the book of Micah is? Tucked away in the prophets at the end of the Old Testament. If you're lost at any point, that's what the contents of the, of the punt of your Bible is for. So you can find the book of Micah. We'll go to chapter 5. Let me explain what we're doing this week and last week. We were our Christmas series, How Many? Um, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas. And we were looking at, decided to, to look at this whole idea of hopes and dreams. And we've gone back into the Old Testament to look at some of the hopes and dreams of the people of God as they were looking forward to something happening. We live this side of the birth of Jesus, so we get to look back at it and remember it. There are many, many people who loved and served God and followed him, but they were looking forward to something. And they didn't know quite what it was going to look like, but they had hints. And they lived with this hope and this dream that something big was going to happen because there were, there were hints throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of the people of God, hints that God was going to do something great, something magnificent. He had done many good things, but they said there's something bigger, something better to come. And there was this hope they lived with. And the hope wasn't, wasn't a hope based on kind of our earthly hope, which can be based on sort of just fanciful thinking, pie in the sky. We can hope for things. We can dream for things. We can hope our favorite football team wins the premiership. But it's very unlikely unless you support about three particular teams who seem to rotate around winning it. And we can hope for many different things. But the biblical hope, the hope they had in the Old Testament, was built on a rock-solid faith, a promise from God that something was going to happen. And we looked at last week, we looked at the um, famous uh, prophecy from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah prophesied that this child would be born and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And we looked at that hope, and we've got another one today from the book of Micah that points to a little bit about who this Savior who is going to be born in, um, to the people of Israel, who's going to be born, who's going to be Savior of the world. Now, the context of the passage, let's just go through a bit of history before we jump into this sort of the prophet uh, Micah speaking. We've got the history of the people of God. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. Everything's fine for two chapters in the Bible, everything's going great. You get to Genesis chapter 3, everything goes wrong because they rebel, they sin, they decide to be their own boss. They say, God, we don't want you. We're not interested in you. And sin comes into the world and it shatters everything. It shatters man's relationship with God. It shatters man's relationship with one another, man with woman, man with work, man with the ground, man with creation. Everything is broken. But God immediately says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to send someone who will crush the serpent, who will change this all. And then we have the history of the people of God, of, of him working that out. He comes to Abraham and he says, through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. This guy Abraham. And Abraham's old, very old, and his wife's very old. They've got no kids. And he says, through you, I'm going to, I'm going to create a mighty nation. You're going to be known as the father of many. And of course, when they laugh at that, thing, how ridiculous is that? But God keeps his promise. And they have a son who's called Isaac, who has another son called Jacob, who has 12 sons who go down into Egypt, the story of Joseph, and they multiply into a great nation. But while they're down in Egypt, um, Pharaoh takes them into slavery, rules over them as a tyrant, and they cannot get out of it. God then raises up a deliverer, Moses. Moses then goes back there and says, let my people go, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, no, and we have the back and forth of the plagues, and no, I won't let your people go, let my people go, etc., etc., and what eventually happens, if you've seen the films or read the passages in Exodus, the people of God come out under Moses, Red Sea, go to the mountain, the presence of God comes on the mountain, you get, they get the law, and so God now has a people for himself, and then he takes them to the land that he'd promised them, the one he'd promised Abraham hundreds of years beforehand. 
And under Joshua, they take the land, they settle in the land, and there's a series of judges who rule the people. And the people want kings, so they get a king, Saul, not so good. And they get the great king, David, the one who slew Goliath. And he's like, he's the mighty king of Israel, the warrior king, the one who wrote the Psalms, a poet as well. He did awesome deeds. He had men around him who did awesome deeds, great mighty men of God. And they established the kingdom of God's people. And it's like, yeah, this is amazing. But always there's the hint that actually there's going to be more. It's not just going to be here. It's going to be greater than that. And then you get um, David's son Solomon. And you have this golden age in the period of, of Israel history where everything seems to be going well. There's so much money around and prosperity and peace. And Solomon is the richest, wisest man who ever lived. And it's like, this is wonderful. But then at the end of Solomon's reign, it all starts to go wrong. He starts, his heart goes away from the Lord. And things just start to get worse and worse. And God's saying, come back to me. And he goes away from the Lord. And as soon as he dies, the kingdom of Israel then splits in two. The fruit, the kind of the, the bad fruit that's been born, has, it reaps, it sows. You know, the harvest comes, and he's now got two kingdoms. You've got the northern one called Israel and the southern one called Judah. And they have a succession of king e- kings each who just get worse and worse and worse, and they go away from God. And God sends people and says, come back to me, come back to me. And occasionally you have a good king who suddenly turns up and tries to reform it all, but they never quite hit it. And they basically are on this cycle, downwards, 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 a rebellion. And God says, if you don't repent and come back to me, you will have to suffer the consequences of your sin. You're going to have to suffer the consequences. You will, be, you will be taken over by foreign rulers. You will be oppressed. You'll be sent into exile. You'll be destroyed as a people. Just, just stop what you're doing. And it goes on and on. And then the, God raises up the, um, the Assyrians, this nation that come and they oppress the northern kingdom of Israel. And they kind of oppress it and God calls repentance and they don't. And eventually the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed and they're taken into captivity. And actually Isaiah was prophesying into that situation we saw last week, saying, just deal with this. And they didn't, and actually the kingdom was eventually destroyed. But he prophesied that there would be one coming who would sort this out. I will bring another, a saviour, a deliverer of my people, pointing forward to Jesus. And then we go to the southern kingdom, Judah, whose capital is in Jerusalem. And they're now being oppressed by the Assyrians, because the Assyrians are in the north, they're coming down. And Micah's saying the same message to them. Actually, you're going to get taken over if you don't repent and come back to me. You're not, and which is where we find Micah chapter 5. So you're in this position where they've got this marauding army coming down that are powerful and mighty. They've already destroyed one kingdom, among others, along the way. And they're now pressing in on Judah, pressing in on Jerusalem. And you have a people who are under threat from their enemy. But in this, the prophet Micah speaks. And he speaks a message of hope to the people. Um, uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 1, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand, the shepherd of his flock, in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So what we're going to look at 
in that section here, there's a few themes I just want to pick out, four themes that I want to just talk about. And I want to look about what they meant for them, the original hearers of the prophecy. That's where you always start. What did it mean for these people in Judah listening to Micah preach? What it meant for Jesus in being fulfilled in Christ? Because ultimately all prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament basically just points to Jesus all the way through it. And then what it means for us um, here today now. So the first theme is, if you're taking notes, is they were under pressure from an enemy. They were under pressure from an enemy. It says there right at the beginning that they've been, they've been a laid siege to. The capital city, Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Judah, there was a siege there. The Assyrians were there. They were knocking on the door. There's this language here where it says, with a rod they strike um, the judge of Israel. This is believed to actually refer to an actual event where the king of Israel, Hezekiah at the time, was taken before the king uh, Sennacherib, who was the king of the Assyrians, and he whacked him round the face. He was struck. I think he was even struck by his own kind of scepter. And it's it's a show of complete humiliation. I own you, is what he was saying. He says, I own you. I dominate you. I can take your king, I can pull him for me, and I can hit him. And there's nothing you can do about it. You are completely under my rule and my thumb. It is a display of complete control, complete power. They are totally defenseless against this marauding enemy. He, is, he, just, he owns them. He says, I can just wipe you out. If I can take your most powerful man and reduce him to that, reduce him to just a mute dummy that I can just slap around when I want to, it means I've won and you've lost. And I am just, I am all over you. They are completely undone. They are powerless against the enemy. And Micah is saying, this is where we are. We as a nation, the people of God, we are up against the wall. And the enemy of us is going to own us and totally destroy us. And, and we're just, we're under pressure and there's nothing we can do about it. We are, we are defenseless against this mighty enemy. Now, what does this make you remind you of Jesus? If we push, push this forward to the times of Jesus... Now, Jesus, let's be be clear, Jesus wasn't ever powerless, but he chose to live that. He chose to be that. It says um, he was under pressure from an enemy. Think about his temptations in the wilderness. After he was baptized, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, Luke chapter 4. It says, and he was assaulted by the enemy in temptations. Change these stones into bread after 40 days of fasting, the enemy said to him. He was under pressure. Fling yourself off the top of the temple. The angels will catch you. You'll be fine. And he says, why not? If you you bow down before me, I will give you the nations of the world, the enemy said to him. He was under intense pressure when he was physically at a low ebb. What about when he was in the garden and he knew what lay before him, the cross? And he's there and he's praying what does he pray? What does it says happen? It says that he sweated drops of blood, which doctors will tell you that's a result of intense emotional anguish, a level of stress that I imagine none of us have ever experienced. Anyone here been so stressed that they've sweated drops of blood? No, I haven't either. But I've been stressed, but I've never been that stressed under that much pressure. And there he was. What about when he was arrested? He was arrested. They brought soldiers. They came at night to get him. And Jesus even said, actually at one point, didn't he? He even said, well, they said, where's Jesus? And he said, I'm, as, I'm he. And they all fell back, didn't they? 
But then he gave himself over to them. He was taken off in chains, dragged before the high priest. What happened? We looked at this at John a few weeks ago, the last passage of John before we took a break till the new year. He was before the high priest, and the high priest asked him a question, and he gave an answer. What happened to him? He got hit around the face, didn't he? How dare you speak to the high priest like that? Then he followed that story through. He was taken tried in a mock, mockery of a court he was then taken out beaten scourged crown of thorns rammed on his head taken out and executed Jesus show, knows what it means to be oppressed by his enemies he knows what it means to be powerless he knows what it's like to be kind of on the receiving end of oppression and that sense of kind of powerlessness and not actually responding to that Now, what about us? We don't actually live in a time where we're physically slaves or we are being controlled. We live in a relatively free country. But let's be clear on what the Bible says. The Bible says that actually we can be slaves to sin. It actually describes all of us in one context to be slaves to sin, slaves to ourselves, slaves to this rebellion against God, that we are people who who stand opposed to God, who will disobey God in every form, who will, who will kind of, can't live up to moral codes, want to just push God out in every way. And you look around our society and you'll see that over and over again, people kind of pushing God out. We don't want anything to do with him. Even on an individual level, we know this intuitively, that we are slaves of sin. Have you ever tried to be good? I mean, seriously tried. I mean, really set your mind and your heart to being good. I will be good. I won't do this wrong. I won't do that wrong. And how long have you lasted? 30 seconds? Maybe 40? If at a real push? You know, maybe you, if you went to bed, you might have lasted the night. So you may have done eight hours and then you woke up and like, oh man, I just missed it. We can't even live up to our own standards of righteousness, let alone God's. We fail. We're coming to the time of year. Anyone start to think about New Year's resolutions? Yeah, they're just means to fail, aren't they? You know, they're just, they're just, it's good to try and do things, but as a standard of earning our favor to God, we are powerless and we are slaves to sin. Now, we can become free from that for sure. We become Christians and we become slaves to righteousness, but even then we still struggle with temptation. We still find ourselves up against pressure from the world to live a certain way. We find ourselves conformed and squeezed into molds. I don't know if you've ever been in, in environments where you find yourself conforming to how everyone's acting, everyone's speaking. I remember it so vividly when I was teaching and I would be in the school, in the classroom, and you get into kind of a staff room environment, and it's amazing how quickly you can find yourself gossiping with the best of them because it's, kind of, it's almost an attitude within what's going on. You're talking about the kids, you're talking about the parents, you're talking about what you know, and suddenly you find yourself gossiping. And I found myself going in and thinking, I'm, not, I'm a light for the gospel. I'm salt in this sort of area. I will change it. And before long, I found myself being squeezed and acting like everyone else. I found myself under pressure. I found myself being kind of, mm, and I'm suddenly involved. And I'm saying, did you know? Oh, my goodness, what they did how they acted, etc., etc., and you find yourself being pushed into this environment. And so we live under this pressure to conform to standards that are not godly. But Jesus knows what that like because he too has been through that. What about the second thing? As we read on, the second one is this theme of weakness being strong. 
He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. The reason he adds the Ephrathah is to identify which Bethlehem he's talking about. And he says, you are too little among the clans of Judah. But from you shall come forth one who is ruler of Israel. Okay, there's a but in there, but you. He, the shift's focus from Jerusalem, which was the seat of power, authority, where the king was. That was the place. The temple was there. That's where God was. That was the best place to be, Jerusalem. And he said, but it's all going wrong in Jerusalem. And he says, but there's another place, a place called Bethlehem. It's a village a few miles south of Jerusalem. And just what you need to know about Bethlehem it was it was completely and totally insignificant. It was this tiny backwater place that just nothing happened there. It was small. It didn't even. In um, Joshua chapter 15, where you read Joshua, you read they were dividing up the promised land. They'd conquered the promised land and they were dividing it up for the different clans. So the clan of Simeon, you have this bit. Clan of Issachar, you have this bit. And Reuben, you have this bit. And it says, Judah, you have these bits. And it lists all the towns that they were got. Bethlehem didn't make the list because it was too small. It was too They list a whole bunch of them. If you read there in Joshua, there are loads of places you've never heard of. Bethlehem's not even on the list because it's so insignificant. It's so small. It's so like, so no one even notices it. You drive through it, if you had a car, a donkey. You drive through it and you wouldn't even notice there. Do you know what I mean? You'd, oh, was that, was that Bethlehem? Oh, okay. You know, what was the, the, oh, that, was that it? I, I kind of missed that. It was just, it's insignificant. But from here would come someone who would rule Israel who would be the ruler, who would come forth, it says, from ancient days. So there's something about the past in here. There's something about a plan that's been going on for a long time here. Now, Bethlehem did have one claim to fame, and that is it was known as the birthplace of David, King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. So it did have something going for it. It wasn't an insignificant place, but David had come from there. But the interesting thing about David was that he was called to be king of God from Bethlehem where he was, but he was so insignificant in his family. When the prophet uh, Nathan turned up to say, no, it wasn't, it was Samuel, wasn't it? Come up and say, right, I'm going to you know, anoint, anoint the new king from your family, Jesse. Bring out your sons, because one of them is going to be king. He lines up his sons, and he goes down, nope, 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 nope. Is that all of them? And then the dad, the dad I'm a dad. Oh, I've got another one, he says. Oh, <laughs> I missed one. And you're like, really? You missed one of your sons? Which one? Oh, David. Well, where's David? Well, he's out with the sheep on the hill, you know, out there, you know, playing his harp and doing what he does with the sheep. Get him in, the prophet says. All right, okay. This is the one. This is the one who's going to be the great and mighty king of Israel. And we know the stories of David. Slay Goliath, had his mighty men, you know, beat the Philistines. He was the guy. And what they're saying is, what the prophet's saying is, there's one coming who's going to be like David, only better. Only better. Now, for the people of Israel, this must have been good news. Because David was pretty cool. David would have been number one. David would have been that great king. Yeah, another like David. All right, then he'll give those Assyrians a really good kick in. I mean, we're just going to, whoa. And he said, no, but this one's going to be better than David. He's going to be more than David. And then if we fast forward to Jesus, what do we read at the beginning of the two Gospels, Luke and Matthew? Who is Jesus descended from? David. He's from the line of David. If you read the genealogies, David is in there. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Oh, man. This is amazing. This is the guy. This is the one. He is the one who's going to be greater than David. But there's something not quite right about it. If you, 
Have anyone noticed in the papers the last couple of days the photos that have come out from the royal family? Who's now in the paper? Who they've got official photos of? Do you remember? Prince George. Three official toddler photos gone around the world. When I published our, our toddler photos on Facebook, my parents noticed and a couple of others, but didn't go around. It wasn't picked up by Sky or you know, the BBC, but they've officially released um, Kate and William's son, George. They've released official toddler photos. You Google it, it'll be come straight up. And this, this is a future ruler here. This is a future king. He's like, what is he? He must be second. Is he third? Charles, William, George. So he's, he's in that royal line. And so he's after his dad. He's number one. He's the one who's going to be king. He's the one who's that future ruler. And he lives in a palace. And when, he's, when, he, when pictures go out, the world knows about it. When his mum and dad go out, whatever they do, touring... The world follow them. It's exciting. Everyone knows about it. This is how you treat a future king, a ruler. But what do we find out about Jesus? He was born in Bethlehem. But he was born to a teenage mum. He wasn't even married. She was betrothed, but she wasn't married to Joseph at that point. That's not how, that's not how kings come. It says he had to be born into a, a shed, a, a stable. I believe it's a kind of a cave in the, that's been hewn into the rock where they kept the animals. We haven't got a crib for him. Well, we'll have to use the feeding trough with some straw. We'll have to put him there. That's not how kings should be. That's not how future rulers should be. It says he grew up kind of in obscurity. Even in the Bible, those bits are missing from his life. You have the birth, and it's suddenly there's a gap, and then he's a, he's a grown man. And he's been working in obscurity, just working an ordinary job. Just an ordinary job, learned the trade of his father, Joseph. He just had an ordinary job. We read in Isaiah 53, it says, He had no form or majesty that we would look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was just, just a guy. But he was the saviour. He was the one promised. And what, what you learn is Jesus knew about weakness. He knew what it meant to be not kind of all there, not the best, not the brightest, not the kind of have all the stuff going for him. He wasn't born in Jerusalem where kings are. He wasn't born into a palace he knew about weakness. And just like Bethlehem was this insignificant place among the clans of Judah, he said, one is going to come from that place who will be the mighty king. Now, I don't know about you, how you feel before God today, but God knows all about weakness. If you look at who he's used over the years, Abraham and Sarah, who were childless OAPs, and he says, you're going to father a nation. It was laughable. Sarah did laugh, it says. We hear about Gideon. We talked about Gideon last week. He was the, one of the weakest clans in the weakest tribe in the whole of Israel. And God said, perfect. I'm going to use you to beat the Midianites. And there's thousands of them, hundreds of thousands. Eventually, he gathers 300 guys, and they go, and they kill, and they defeat a mighty army. David, the forgotten shepherd boy who kills a giant and led a nation. What about the disciples? Twelve kind of ordinary guys, uneducated from all sorts of backgrounds. We had the collaborator, we had the kind of the freedom fighter terrorists, we had just fishermen who were kind of ordinary working guys, and he used those men to change the world. God knows all about weakness. He knows all about that. And for us as believers here today, being weak before God is a good thing. Being weak before God is a good thing. To become a Christian in your first place is a place of weakness. You have to recognize your sin. You have to own it. You have to say, yes, I have rebelled against you, God. I have turned away from you. You have to say, I am weak before you. I can't save myself. I need you to save me. But even after that process, as we live the Christian life, it's a place of weakness, of recognizing actually we can't do this before God. 
we need God to help us. I remember when we moved here to start the church and there were just a handful of us at the time. And I remember looking at this city and driving around it and I was teaching, doing supply teaching and I was going to different places and I suddenly realized how big a city can be. I mean, it's really big and there's loads of people and none of them care that we're here to start a church to tell people about Jesus, the best news in the world. And I remember feeling so weak and so kind of like insignificant, thinking, God, what are you doing? What's going to happen here? But from a place of weakness, God does great things. When we humble ourselves before him, when we say, God, we can't do this without you, great things emerge. He can build churches. He can change lives. He can change nations for that. Let's look at the, the third one. The third theme, returning. This theme of returning and coming back, if we carry on, it says, um, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when, he sh- he, uh, when she was in labor has given birth, and the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He's saying that there's a time coming when you're actually going to go into exile. The nation of Judah was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire a little while after this. They would, follow, they would go into exile in Babylon. But then he said there will be a returning to Jerusalem. You read the stories of uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah and Ezra. In the Old Testament, you'll see a returning to Israel where they kind of they, they restored the city of Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, we kind of hung the gates, put the walls back on. And so the, the prophet is now looking many, many years into the future, saying that you will go, but there will be a returning to that. And if we fall to Jesus, the interesting thing, that word return there is actually a word for conversion. He said there will be a conversion of the people. When Jesus came, what did he proclaim? He said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent, turn, and believe the good news. Come back. He said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He said, you, there needs to be a conversion in you. There needs to be a change in you to come back into God's kingdom. So this returning is about something more than just moving from place to place. It's something internal. It's something spiritual. It's something God has got to do in your heart and you are being brought in. And that was the message Jesus brought. It's got to be a heart change. It's not just a, you, you do different things. It's not about follow my rules. It's actually there's got to be something deep inside you. You need to return. And it says there you've got to return to the brothers. There's brothers plural. So there is a, a family picture going on there. And you return not just to Jesus on an individual, but you actually become part of a corporate body, a family. And for us, if you read your, read your Bible from cover to cover, what you find is the heart of God to bring people to himself as a family. He started with Adam and Eve, and what did he say to them? He said, multiply, I want more of you. I want to be in relationship with many of you. And you follow the story of God all the way through. And he's basically saying, I want a people for myself. I want a people to come to me who can be my family, who can be with me. Not because God needed that, like he was lonely, But actually, God's heart is to bless and be in relationship with it. And then we go to the end of the story in Genesis, and what do we have? We have a city. And in the middle of the city, there's a garden. So there's the garden that's come back, and the tree is there. But the, the, the city is full of people, people who will be in relationship with God forever. And there is this returning. And so when we... When we talk to people about Jesus, we're not trying to sell something like it's a sales pitch. I'll sell Jesus to you. Here's, the, here's my unique selling point. You don't have to go to hell. That's a good one. You get to be in heaven for it. It's not like so. You're calling people to return to something that actually 
we, all, we had and we were designed to have in the first place. We were designed to be in relationship with God. We were designed to know God. It says in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in the heart of man. There's, that, there's something in us that is longing for more than this earth. Because we were designed for that. We were designed for relationship with God. We were designed to be with him forever. We weren't designed to live like this in this place. We were designed to see God face to face. And so we are calling people back to something. Come back to a relationship with God. Come back to the way it should have been in the beginning. And we're calling people into a family. In our Western individual mindset, we can say it's all about your relationship with Jesus. Which it is, but it's also part of your relationship with Jesus alongside mine. And us together. And I can remember when I became a Christian, this one, I almost I wasn't told that. And I felt a bit cheesed off when I found this out years later. I'd sold that I could have a relationship with Jesus, which was wonderful. But no one ever told me about the church. No one ever told me that I'm part of something bigger. I should be connected to more than just me. It shouldn't just be me having my relationship with Jesus, me and my small corner and you and yours. It's about us together being a family worshipping God and being on mission with him together. And that's what he's saying. The prophet's saying you're going to come back together and you're going to be brothers together. There's obviously sisters involved. There's a wider family connection of what we're going to do, which is why we're so big here on actually connecting together here on a Sunday. Get here on a Sunday. Be part of our life group so you get to connect with one another. Christianity is not designed to be lived out alone, an individual. I remember reading one theologian who said the individual Christian is an abomination to God. Oh, what? And what he's saying is actually someone who's just trying to be a Christian on their own, devoid from community, devoid from fellowship, devoid from church, is just so ridiculous that you don't find it in the Bible. It's actually anti what God is saying. God says, I'm bringing you into a family, into the church. Let's move on with the last one. Time's pressing. The last one, Savior. The last thing, Savior. It says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So the people hearing it, what would they know? There's someone coming who's going to be greater than David. They're going to come from Bethlehem, the same town as David. What are they going to be like? Well, they're going to stand. That's the first thing, which means they're going to last forever. They're going to stand. They're going to be there. They're going to endure. They're not going to be one of these kings who comes and then goes and dies. They're going to stand forever. He's going to be a shepherd like David. Only bigger and better, he's going to provide for their needs. That's what a shepherd does. He provides protection from predators and enemies. He provides food, he provides guidance. This is where we're going. It leads them. This is what this king is going to be like. He's going to go rule in the strength of the Lord, which isn't through human manipulation or human injuring. It's going to be the power of God working through them. He says he's going to be secure. There he says we're going to be free from the power of our enemies. Free from the power of the Assyrians. The Babylonians, anyone, any other uns out there, they're not going to come and get us. We're going to be secure in God because he is going to be ruling over us. And this kingdom is going to go to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. It's not just going to be here. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be everywhere and it's going to last forever. It's going to have no end. And there will be peace. There will be peace. Enemies will have been defeated and gone away. They won't just be kept at arm's length. There will be a peace because, and it will transcend over everything. Wrongs will be righted so there can be peace. Relationships will be restored so there can be peace. Enemies will be gone away so there will be peace. So the people of God would have had this hope looking forward to this Savior who is going to come. And who was this Savior? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus came, born in Bethlehem. He was God the Son, come to earth. We read that at the beginning of John. 
He was eternal, wasn't he? In the beginning was the, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says he came and dwelt amongst us. So this was God come to earth, this eternal one. What did Jesus say about himself? I am the good shepherd. Oh, there's that shepherd thing. Thanks for joining the dots. Right, you're the one. You're the one who's going to lead. And it's even says, so I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep to protect them. So you're that one. He says, he ministered in the power of God. How do we know that? Lazarus, come forth. Huh? And Lazarus, the dead guy, walks out the tomb. You think, the power of God. He caused demons to flee. He, he calmed the storm. He protected his followers from the enemy. His kingdom will have no end. We read that. And only through him can we find peace. Only through relationship with Jesus can we know peace. And what does this mean for us? Jesus is our saviour. He's the one. The one that they were looking forward, we get to know. The one that they lived in hope and expectation, we get to, we get to call by name. We get to call friend. We get to call Lord and Saviour. What they saw dimly, they, we get to see clearly. I don't know if anyone, I wear glasses or contact lenses. When I take them out, nothing's clear. You could all be just sticking your tongues out at me now without my glasses. I wouldn't know. I could read that, but I couldn't see you. You know, you'd all be blurry things. And that's what these guys are like. They'd look forward and they can kind of see a face. I could see Neil, but if he was just, you know, I wouldn't see that. I couldn't see the details. I couldn't see the distinctions. I couldn't, I couldn't see it. And when we get our Bible, because we're now believers and we got our New Testament, it's like we've been given those glasses. <gasps> Look, I can see your face. I can see the detail. It all becomes clear. And so we read these things. And on one hand, you've got those men and women there looking forward in faith and hope for something. But we get the privilege to look back and say, this is our Savior. When we come to this Christmas time and we celebrate a baby in a manger, this is who we're talking about. This was the hope of the nation of Israel. This was actually the hope of the world coming forward. So when we see a child in a manger, actually this is the one. And it's not just a baby. This baby represents so much more. And it's such a reason for us to celebrate and praise that we get to see this. We can praise that Jesus has come. We get to praise God that we live this side of it, that we live in this good of this revelation of who Christ is. We get to praise him that he's saved us and we're actually in this kingdom and we benefit from all these things that he's given us, that we know that we have security in him, that he will protect us ultimately from anything that comes against us, that we will stand firm under him and one day we will be with him forever. That's good news, right? Right? (laughs) Okay, time's pressed on. Ban, do you want to come up? And everyone else, do you want to stand up? Let's just... I just want to... I want to just do a response right now. So do you want to just stand to your, your feet? And I just want us to try and take some of these truths and apply them today to kind of where we are right now. And I'm, I'm in expectation of faith that God will do something in you now right here. Okay, I'm not going to ask you to do anything like, you know, come out or anything. I'm just going to pray and ask the Spirit to minister to you where you are today now. So please be in faith and expectation for that, because I think God wants to just do some stuff in people's lives. And it will be individuals, depend on where your situation and what your life is. So I'm just going to pray through um, a few things um, today. So do you want to just open your hands? I'd say, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill your people now? Fill your people now. Fill your people now. If you feel...
like the, um, the residents of Jerusalem did back in that prophecy, that kind of under pressure. <laughs> I feel under pressure. I feel like there's kind of the enemy is oppressing me in that way. It, this could take many forms. It could be an actual kind of oppression, maybe at work or a situation where you feel you're being hard done by by a boss or a power structure or something. And you feel that kind of, you're under that pressure. It could be a pressure of, you know, a, a situation you find yourself in and you're being pressured to conform a certain way. Maybe no one said anything, but you feel like, I should act this way. I should say these things. But you know what? I don't want to because that's not the way Jesus would have me live. And you feel that sense of pressure and that weight under you. I want to say to you today, Jesus knows what that's like, number one. He knows it. He knows your situation. And he will give you strength in your Take this as a message of hope, like the people in Jerusalem, that your Savior is with you. And you will stand firm in that. You will stand firm by his grace. And if that's you, I want you to take hold of that right now and say, that's for me. I need that grace. I need that grace to stand firm, to be a light, to kind of, you know, shine in that place, to not give in, to act godly in response to ungodly behavior. I will act in a way that is acceptable to Jesus as I do that. If that's you now, you just, you just take that from Jesus today. Take that by faith. If you feel weak in the face of what is before you, maybe God's called you to do something. Maybe he's asking you to step out in faith. Maybe it's like, I need to tell someone about you know, that I'm a Christian. Maybe no one at work knows. Maybe no one in my friendship group knows. Maybe there's um, uh, someone you need to talk to. You just feel like, I feel weak in doing that. Someone you've got to approach. Someone you've got to confront. Someone you've just got to say, look... This is a situation. Someone you want to tell about Jesus. This is my testimony. This is my story. Something that, you know, God's asking you to do. And you just feel weak. And like, I, just, I feel insignificant. I can't do that. I don't have the resources. I want to say to you today, brilliant. It's good to be in that place. But by God's grace, he will equip you. Because his power is made perfect in your weakness. And I feel a sense from God that you should just take that step. Whatever the smallest step is you can take, take it. Because when Peter took one step to follow Jesus along the shore, when he said, come follow me, he became the leader of the church. Prayed at Pentecost and 3,000 got saved. Walked on water. But it all began with a step on the seashore. Jesus said, come follow me. And he just took a step. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that. I feel God saying to you, just take that step today. If you feel weak, that's fine. He's the one who's strong. Holy Spirit of God, come meet your people now. If there's something you know you specifically need to ask from God, you know, a particular provision... Just ask that now. I feel there's a God will provide. He's a strong one. I've got all the resources. You don't need to have them. I've got them. I've got boldness. I've got courage. I've got grace. I've got power. If it's, if it's money, I've got money. If it's healing, I've got healing. If it's freedom, I've got freedom. If it's peace, I, I've got that too. And I've got it in spades. Plenty to go around. thing that returning if you feel there's a sense of actually you maybe you've held back on getting connected
getting involved with the church, whether this church or another church you're a part of, whether you just feel that there's that kind of, I haven't committed, I haven't connected, I haven't given myself over to that kind of wider family. Maybe it's time you just make that decision now and say, God, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do what that means. I'm going to get to that kind of environment. I'm going to be involved. chocolate coin yeah. if you know that maybe make that decision now this is what I'm going to do I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to put that stake in the ground and say God I'm going to do it do what it takes Lord Jesus See things. 